When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Complicated problems often have a right answer because you can predict what the interactions are. Mm. Therefore, the smart call is to optimize your solutions to make them more efficient to getting to the solution as fast as possible. However, if you try that with a complex problem, you will likely optimize the wrong thing and cause a disaster elsewhere. Hey, it's David, and you're listening to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul your source for practical leadership inspiration, tools, and strategies you can use to achieve transformational results without sacrificing your humanity or your mind in the process. Welcome to the show today. Thank you for making us one of the top leadership podcasts in the world. I invite you share share the show. Uh, if you haven't got on and left a rating on your favorite service, please do that. That helps other people discover and know how to tap into the human-centered leadership practices that we're all about invite other people on that movement our guest today is a fantastic resource so i want to introduce him by asking you a question have you ever faced a complex problem or maybe you are right now a complex problem with uncertain outcomes that also require fast decisions so our guest today is going to be sharing strategies to address complex problems help you do that to make decisions without having complete information ways to sustain your team through uncertain times and techniques so that you can manage your own anxiety and lead effectively through all these kinds of circumstances. Our guest today is Everett Harper, who is the CEO and co-founder of Trust, a human-centered software development company, which was named as an Inc. 5000 fastest growing private company in 2020 and 2021. He's also an NCAA national champion in soccer, and Everett's also recently authored a new book, Move to the Edge, Declare It the Center, Practices and Processes for Creatively Solving Complex Problems. So I hope that that title intrigued you as much as it did me. Everett Harper, (laughs) welcome to Leadership Without Losing Your Soul. Hey, thank you. And I really appreciate you who are listening for making the time and joining us in this conversation. And we appreciate your time. So going to get into this topic of com- complex problems and, and moving to the edge and making it the center and, and all of that. But and I know that you've listened to the show before ever. So I've got to start by asking you uh, the question that I ask every guest, which is <laughs> if you can take us back, what is your earliest memory of yourself as a leader? So I think the earliest memory of myself as a leader is in many ways on uh, the soccer field. And I've been playing since I was six. And what I'll, what I'll share is one of the things that is a great advantage when you're an athlete is the sort of test of whether you can dribble past a person or whether somebody can dribble past you. And you get to learn really quickly what it is to fail. So being able to have that moment where I was a goalkeeper at the time and having another team come in and put five goals past me in one half. And I remember just leaning against the pole, feeling very depressed. And the other thing, however, that happens 
is that who picks you up? How do you re- rebound from that experience? And so knowing that I was still going to play goal, I had to sort of figure out how to like dry my tears and do the best I could for the team. And that was the start of being able to communicate out. Oh, I got this. I'm good. You don't have to worry about me, et cetera. Turn that and flip it to the next game or uh, uh, games afterwards. When somebody else fails, you have a little bit more compassion and a little bit more empathy for what it feels like when that person fails. Do you pick them up and say, hey, I know you can do better or get it together, but do you crush them or do you pick them up mm. when they're down? It's a, real, it's a real teaching experience to have that, um, that feeling of being you know, past, uh, of being scored on, and then to look at others and say, oh, wait a minute, what would I have wanted or what do they need in this moment? That's, for me, the sort of moment of leadership um, that I would sort of uh, apocryphy tell. So, Wow, but, I love that. That's a lot of learning from uh, having five five goals uh, get past you. Yep, I remember exactly where it was. Is in Van Wyck High School. <laughs> I was wearing a green goalie jersey. It was not my most fun soccer memory. That's for sure. Uh, it's so fun hearing these memories. You know that, and obviously those those things on the on the field or on the pitch, right? They uh, they teach us so much. I mean. You know, I, I will tell you, though, well, something that we have in common is that I also started. That was the first sport that I ever played as a child. Oh, wow. Okay. Was soccer. And I started at age seven. Mm-hmm. I lasted about three games in the net and then got pulled because way more than five goals got by me. And there yeah, was no yeah. chance it was going to get any better. Right, 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 right. I <laughs> uh, did not have the athleticism. That's funny. The... uh and, and you know the the lesson that you learn there is one that I think factors into so much of what you get into in in the book of mm-hmm. uh, how we're going to address complexity and and learn and move forward and and all of those elements. So I think it's a, a it's just fascinating to me to see how those childhood experiences transition into some of our approaches and things that we're doing as, as yeah. leaders as adults. Well, let's get into move to the edge, declare it the center, and. Uh, as we get into the book, I'd like to start, if we could, by defining terms, because there are yeah. a couple of, of elements, and, and you, you do this in the book, and so I'd like to, to give our listeners the benefit of this. And then uh, there, this is such a rich book, listener, I, I got to tell you, and we're only going to get to taste different elements of it uh, and hope that you'll be able to, uh, to get, get, get hungry and, and check out the whole thing. All right, so let's define terms. Can you help us understand what you mean by a complex problem and how those differ from complicated problems? Sure. So um, a lot of this comes out of complexity science, complexity theory, system theory. So that's the genesis. So complicated problems are typically things that we're probably really familiar with. They may have lots of interactions. They may have lots of uh, parts and so forth. But all the relationships between those parts is relatively understood. So if you go to a factory producing widgets, part A fits in the part B, part B fits fits in the part C. Now, when you get into a big factory, like building a plane, there may be many, 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 many parts. But it's relatively understood how those parts interact. Um, Even when you have um, catastrophic events, how does the parts interact? So when you have a plan for a plane, you wind up building a plane, not a boat. The difference between um, that and a complex problem 
So you can have millions of those elements, but not all of the elements are understood and their interactions are not understood. So for example, if you are driving in traffic across the bridge and someone has an accident a little bit uh, in front of you, is the choice to go to stay in line? Do you find a different route? Do you go all the way around um, and, and take, a different, uh, take a different bridge, which is a problem in the Bay Area all the time? Because you can't predict how that one car has affected all the rest of the traffic. It becomes a very complex problem. And so that's all right. So that's a definition. But the important part, and you'll probably ask about this, is why does that matter? Take us away. Why does oh, that okay. matter? Okay, <laughs> fair enough. Here's why it matters. So why does the difference between complicated and complex problems matter? Complicated problems often have a right answer because you can predict what the interactions are. Mm. Therefore, the smart call is to optimize your solutions to make them more efficient to getting to the solution as fast as possible. However, if you try that with a complex problem, you will likely optimize the wrong thing and cause a disaster elsewhere. So air traffic control systems are issues with this. Supply chain is issues with this. And even more urgently in my mind, and this is part of the reason for writing the book, does anybody know what the right answer to climate change is? There isn't one. Mm -hmm. It's a complex problem. And so we need a different method of addressing those complex problems than what we'd use in a complicated problem. And that's really the genesis of the book. And so many of the more challenging uh, issues that we are confronting as human beings, I mean, these are what in these terms, they're complex problems, right? When we're talking about whether we're talking about racial justice, whether we're talking about, uh, you mentioned wildfires in California or pandemic response or all of right. these different elements, it's, it's hard to just narrow it down to even if we thought really long and hard, a right answer, because there's so many unknowns. That's right. And your right answer may be different than another person's right answer. And so that, that has all sorts of implications. And, and that's why I think both it's interesting and why it's urgent. Um, people probably know, you know, hear about sort of typical command control or um, top-down decision-making. That really comes out of the early 20th century and trying to optimize in factories. The stuff we're dealing with are not factories and human beings are definitely not factories. Absolutely. And so any of the issues you have, which you deal with in your show about how to lead teams, how to self-manage, how to inspire and develop culture, those are complex organisms. And that is much more in the spirit of kind of what I think is fascinating, but I think is going to be the next skill for the next decade. It is fascinating, isn't it? And, and you know, I think the importance, and you underscore this as you get to it, you write this later in the book, but I'm going to put it up front is that these complex problems also can leave us feeling um, for many people, uh, you know, out of control, anxious. It's an unknown future. It's complicated. We thought it was complicated. It's actually complex. Mm -hmm. And so you, you basically say, look, complexity is the new normal. It is. I think it is. Um, and if anybody is sort of, as a question of that, I've got the next, the last two years for you. <laughs> um, right. And I, I think, and, and to, in a, in a very sympathetic way, we got hit by all these things at about the same time. 
Mm-hmm. It's not new, but they came together in so many different ways and it interacts with so many other complex issues. The pandemic makes people have to make choices about whether to do at-home work, I'm sorry, remote work. How do you build a culture in a remote work environment when you've always been in office? And then you're trying to deal with things around just, are your people healthy? How do you stay connected? All of those things, there's no simple answer to all of that. And then there's a fire in your backyard. Um, so yeah, people have been faced with this. And so that's part of the reason for writing the book is how can I help people get tools so that we can all get through it? Yeah. And these kinds of decisions, these kinds of challenges that we're facing, they range from the personal of, you know, should I plan that vacation that I wanted? I've heard this from many people. Should yeah, I yeah. even think about that for the future? Because gosh, it's so hard to know what's going to happen. That's right. All, all the way to the CEO who's trying to figure out how to structure and organize their business for, again, an unknown future. And that that unknowability on some levels definitely impacts us in, in so many aspects of life. So that's this whole package, this bundle of realities mm-hmm. moved you to write, move to the edge, declare at the center. So what does move to the edge and declare at the center? Those are two pieces of a process. Yeah. At a 50,000 foot level, what does that mean? And then let's let's get into it. Sure. So it's a framework. It's a framework for thinking. It's a framework for moving and making decisions. And about complex problems, there's lots of unknowns and uncertainties. So move to the edge is about moving through those unknowns. How do you discover when you don't know where to start? How do you make progress? There's a set of tools and processes to help do that retrospectives, pre-mortems, different survey tools. As you get closer to, oh, I see a hypothesis, it's very much in a scientific method kind of manner, you may come up with innovations, you might come up with experiments, you might be able to reduce the risk of those uncertainties. Move to the center is how do you make those into systems? How do you, quote unquote, operationalize them? But how do you make those discoveries Um, scalable beyond myself to the rest of the organization, shareable. So it's not just me doing it, but but a lot of people have a part in the solution. Systematized so you can reliably deliver on these innovations. And finally, uh, sustainable. Because if there's one, uh, one thing that we've learned over the last two years is we cannot rely on heroism to change things. Heroism is not sustainable. Building systems reduces the load on any individual while still being able to have impact. And that is really critical for being able to sustain innovations. I think that is such an important principle that every leader, every manager needs to internalize is that uh, heroism is not a solution. You know, it's that it's a it, choose your metaphor, right? And so uh, you're an athlete. You can't sprint a marathon. Well, I guess there's like two or three folks who can, but for the, <laughs> the majority of us, like, you, you know, there's that pace and you can sprint for a hundred yards, but that's your sprint. And if you're relying on a sprint or heroism or all that extra effort continually, you don't have a sustainable system. That's right. That's right. So those are the two pieces. How do you navigate through unknowns and how do you create a system around those discoveries and then make progress over time? There's a third piece. And this was also a piece that was important to include in the book. 
Um, you can have the best systems in the world, but you have your own self-management. So there's a part in the book which, which I call interior practices. How do you as a leader, when you have that moment of, I don't know the answer, what do you do? Um, I will guess you and I and everybody who's listening, were we, trained, we were trained to have the right answer as fast as possible, put our hand up in the air, be, be definitive and certain, right? Absolutely. Um, how many of us were trained to ask the right question? Mm-hmm. Right. That transition is starting to happen, but we have to train on a new method. And it starts with saying, I don't know the answer. How can we make progress anyway? For some folks, that question itself freezes people. Yeah. Um, I'll give it, I'll give a quick example. Early on in the pandemic, fires are just about starting. I'm part of a CEO group and I asked people, oh, I'm sorry. And George Floyd had uh, just been murdered. And I developed relationships with folks and I asked, hey, is anybody talking about this in their organizations? And people who have incredible success of taking companies public said privately, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm scared of saying the right thing. Very human reactions. Mm -hmm. But the contrast between their abilities when dealing with things that were known and the anxiety and, and, and freezing that was happening when they're dealing with something that's unknown was so stark. And that made me say, hey, we have to talk about this in the book because we all as leaders know that moment. How can we get through it? And, you know, you describe in the book uh, some language you use around this. You said for some that edge, the unknown, that that edge of what we do know is scary and dangerous. And it's a misstep away from falling off a cliff yep. and thus should be avoided. And that's our kind of our, our default for some folks. And then for others, it's a thrilling dopamine generating experience. It's yeah. <laughs> yeah. clarifying and addicting that the edge is both a cognitive and an emotional experience. And I, I, that stood out to me. I thought that was important to draw attention to because all of us have our own our own reaction to the That's edge right. and our own history with it. And you know that uh, I, I certainly resonate with what you're talking about. Uh, you know, our education, a Western education system, it's about getting the right answer as quickly right. and accurately as possible. Right. So that's. And maybe some of those problems that we have to get a right answer to are complicated, but we can tease them out. Right. Right. It's the others that that are are challenging. I learned a lot about sort of that edge that is thrilling um, from people in extreme sports. I've also, you know, played, you know, uh, obviously with soccer. And you can see in some ways the people who kind of are drawn to that moment, but they still have to manage that moment. You could jump off a plane and do and do uh, for skydiving or go off a long uh, ski jump and so forth where that edge is really thrilling, but you know they practiced and practiced and practiced not only the routines, but their own physiology in order to meet that challenge. Yeah, well, you, you talk about that role of practice and I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, but I thought it was, a it, while we're on the topic, a really powerful metaphor uh, as, a, as a collegiate athlete and a cha- part of a championship team where you practiced the, the way you describe your practice is in getting super fatigued. Yep. 
in practice and then doing something. Yes. So talk to us about that and, and the applications for us as leaders here. Yeah. Two examples. Really simple one is we have, there's a thing called a rondo where it's five people around a circle, one person in the middle, and you're trying to, it's like keep away. That's sort of straightforward, but then you ask people to start counting. And just the distraction of counting, all of a sudden you can see people starting to misplace their passes, right? It's adding a different stress to something that is um, rote. And so coaches will up the ante of pressure or of cognitive distraction in order to get to practice when you're going to be in a game. The second example is, um, and we did lots of that. The second example is when we were towards the end of the season, we're training for NCAAs and we had to get really, really fit. We wanted to be one of the fittest teams in the country because we know what happens at the end of games, your mental fatigue. And so by practicing the moment when you're tired and then having a cognitive assignment or then practicing, okay, who's got who on this corner kick or who's going to wear on the field trains you to be able to think well under that kind of pressure and under that kind of fatigue. What's the, what's the, the con end? As a result, we were incredibly confident at the end of the game that there was no team that could beat us because we were, they were more fit. And if there was, with five minutes left to go, a 70-yard ball that we had to run after, not only could we do it, but we could make the right decision afterwards. That's what, and we won the final one nothing in part because those last 15 seconds, we had three corner kicks against us. We are yelling at each other. Mark up, mark up, do this, do that. But it's in part to make sure that our mental decision-making was spot on. But we had practiced that. Yeah. And so the relevance to the second part of your question is, how is that relevant? You had an earlier podcast of what do you do when, not if things break. It's a version of that. It's practicing in advance for when you feel anxious or uncertain and being able to move through that and develop the practices and the confidence to move through that so that when it actually happens, you already know what you want to do. And helping your team acquire the same abilities. Exactly. That, the confidence that you're describing, it's interesting to me when we talk about the physical fitness, it's not just wind sprints. It's not just the physical capacity to endure. It's the mental ability to make good decisions in yes. the middle of all of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, the, and, and the good news is there are some people who are gifted at this. The good news is this can be practiced. A lot of this can be practiced. A lot of this can be, you know, there are many things I talk about in the book and maybe we'll get into those, but it's not born with, it is how do you develop this skill just like every other skill. And of course, you'll stink at it the first time. <laughs> so don't wait till when you need it to, to find out that you're terrible. I'm certainly terrible at many of these, um, but over time I've been, I've gotten better, so. Uh, as with everything that is of importance and valuable. That's right. You, gotta, you, you don't have to, a, a mentor of mine way back said, you don't have to be good to start, but you do have to start to become good. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. 
So uh, let's get into this framework then a, a little bit. So uh, let's start with the the move to the edge. You mentioned that there are several um, different kinds of ways of of getting there and different processes. And I wonder if you might walk us through uh, a couple of those so that we have a, a sense of what you're talking about. Sure, of course. Um, so uh, there's a couple different types of tools uh, that I detail in the book. I'll start with one of them. There's one of my favorites. It it's, uh, uses what they call a counterfactual, um, sort of the ability to imagine a future that doesn't actually exist. Um, and ironically, Daniel Pink talks about this in his new book, um, The Power of Regret. And it was really interesting. It's like, oh, yeah, that's exactly what we're, we're doing. So here's one of the things we we're, uh, it's called a pre-mortem. So place yourself in a situation. You and your team are about to launch a big initiative in about three weeks. You've worked on it for months. As a leader of that team, you gather everybody together and everybody's excited to release. And you say the following. In nine months, when this initiative has fully been developed, it's gotten to everybody, et cetera, et cetera, imagine it is a complete failure. Everything has gone wrong. Pause. Why did it happen? What went wrong? You let that sit for a second and people, and you ask people to write them down separately. It's really key to get diverse opinions is to have, and it's also able to include introverts, have people write them their ideas down separately. I usually then start, usually with something self-deprecating, like the CEO wasn't paying attention to this key element, right? Lightens the load, takes some responsibility, because that, of course, could be wrong. Makes it safe and for everybody else to contribute. Bingo. Then people start to speak up. And usually it's kind of fun. Like you just imagine all the disasters. But what then happens is once all those are on the table, then you work backwards and say, how could we have mitigate that? How could we have changed that? How could we change the outcome? And what's really interesting is the things that you thought that you had covered, because I said you had been working on this for a while and you got a lot of smart people. The things that you miss because you imagine a future outcome and things going wrong, pulling it into the present, you're like, oh, wow, let's do this or let's harden this. Let's make sure there's a communication path here. Let's involve this other person and get their feedback before we start because they're critical in the solution and we didn't really anticipate that. It's amazing the stuff that comes out and what you've done is practiced for things going sideways in advance so you can actually do something about it. The pre the the pre mortem rather than yeah. the post mortem the pre mortem. Uh, we've got a, a product release here coming up, so I'm thinking you know that's going to be a practical takeaway for me is to make sure that we go and do a, a good pre mortem there. Yeah, we just led that with our with, a, with one of our clients with one of our software clients. We led that with the client, and it was incredibly successful because they felt like they were part of the solution and aligned everyone in making this successful by having a candid conversation of what could go wrong without the fear of, are we blaming each other? No, we're actually anticipating this and let's be really creative about what we can do ahead of time. It, it worked amazingly well. It's a, it's a fascinating cognitive shortcut because blame is always backward looking, right? It's, yep. it's always looking back and putting something on somebody, but this is like looking backwards in the future. And 
removes all of that. I love that. What a, what a fantastic technique. Okay. So moving to the edge is about, you know, we're getting to that place of the unknown. So we've got the pre-mortem. That's one technique. What would be one more we might use? Sure. Um, the other one is, is very similar. It's, it's called a retrospective. So moving to the edge doesn't mean you have to, or, or moving to the edge and going through unknowns doesn't mean you have to write it, have the right answer right away. What you can do is, oh, we have a hypothesis about what should happen. How do we make sure that that happens? Okay, so you, you make a bet, you have to take action, you move forward. A retrospective happens, depends on once every two weeks, every four weeks, every six weeks, depends on the size of the project. But a planned event with everybody who is in the project or the team or the initiative. And it's very simple, I'll, su I'll summarize the steps. You gather everybody together. Again, um, the important thing is people can contribute independently or anonymously as well. 10 minutes, what went well? People write it down, they submit it, you read them out. You vote on what the top ones you wanna discuss are. And then you have a discussion, what went well? Because it's just as important to keep doing the things that work well and getting buy-in about, oh, wow, yeah, that thing I was skeptical about, it actually did work well, thanks. Pause, 15 minutes, what didn't go well? Write them down, read them out, vote on the things that could be better. Have that discussion. The point of the conversation is learning. And this is an important part for later. The, part of the, the purpose of the conversation is learning. Often by asking questions, what went wrong? Oh, communication gap. I thought you meant this in marketing when I meant this in product. Oh, okay. Blameless, uh, sorry, blameless retrospectives increase the psychological safety of the team because you can model sharing information without being punished. Mm -hmm. Two, you can get clear information out from a diverse set of eyes. Three, and this is the critical part, the last part of this is you collect action items either to continue to do things well or fix or mitigate the things that aren't going well. Those get written down, assigned, and then followed up on so that by the time the next retrospective comes in, the things that were addressed were taken care of, and then there may be new things. So what is the effect of this? And how does this fit into moving to the edge? One, you can see whether your hypotheses for solving an unknown problem actually came out. You can discover new unknowns. You address the uncertainty by saying, oh, we are in this together. You can increase the safety and the radical candor of a team to bring up the bad news or bring up the good news. The important part is making this part of your system so it's repeated so that it continues as part of the way that you address the project itself. And it's amazing how much people then take the initiative to create new solutions to previously unforeseen challenges or celebrate the solutions that you came up with. That's the making of a really good team. And it's one of the tools that we use quite frequently. So we've got the the pre-mortem and the retrospective. And the, the part of the value of that retrospective too strikes me that in creating that psychological safety and really bringing up what worked and, and the things and that, that whole process of sharing and the diversity of voices is that it allows for when we're talking about complexity uh, and the unknowns, it allows for the realization that sometimes we get lucky. 
Yeah. Some, sometimes things go well for some reason that we didn't anticipate or that we can learn from and maybe even capitalize on the future, but right. have to have a way to capture all those things. That's right. That's right. I think that's a great point. Um, not all this is planned. So, you know, in one of the, the cool things about this book is you've got so many different case studies and great examples that I want to encourage everybody to, to take a look at, and, and we may be able to, to tap into some of those. One of the, the, one of the many examples that you share talking about, uh, and you mentioned diversity of voices and the way that this draws together, just as a, an easy and yet frustrating example is artificial intelligence and race. Yeah. And I have read, and so I'm a, I'm a white guy, so you know I get the default benefit of, of all those things. So some of this I'm not aware of. I have read sure. of some of the challenges of it, but you share a couple in the, in the book that were like, are you kidding me? I did yeah. not know that. I, yeah. I, being straightforward, I did not know this. So, but it's a great example of why this kind of practice is so critical for complex solutions that we're coming up with. Yes, absolutely. So uh, the AI example uh, for the for the listeners, I'll, I'll sort of briefly go through it. It may surprise folks that when I go to an airport and I go to a bathroom, that eh, 30, 40% of the time, the soap doesn't come out of the dispenser when I put my hand under it or the water doesn't either. There are many of those times where I will see people to my left and right who are white, who don't seem to have any problem. And I just sort of like, okay, I'm just going to deal with this. Well, the reason is because there's different sensors that companies will use. And some of those sensors do not, were not tested on and don't pick up dark skin. Um, you have uh, fitness rings and other things that are even more serious that don't really account for different skin tones. Uh, similarly, cameras were not designed, Kodak did not design film, uh, in fact, made decisions around film to deliberately darken skin because they didn't want to accommodate for dark skin. So that's why most black people, when you take a, a, an average picture, we come out much darker than we would have otherwise. That's a film issue and it's a design issue. So imagine though that sensor in a world of AI being the same ones that are on um, self-driving vehicles. So now Instead of that problem being an annoyance that I can then fix, I become literally invisible to a driverless truck in the middle of a street. And considering that most of the world is darker skinned than probably the designers of that technology, that little instance that could be in that little design that can be in millions and millions of vehicles around the world could be lethal to me or someone who looks like me. So that's the stakes. I imagine your listeners don't want to be and find out after the fact that, oh my God, I didn't know that this was a problem and then have to realize they have to, they, they participate in something that is lethal. So what's the answer? You got to get diverse teams early in the process. You have to test with a diverse group of uh, users. And if you bake that into the system, and this is where the system, the move to the declare its center is, if you declare as a center that we will both have voices, representation, testing, um, prototyping with diverse people, you're less likely to have that blind spot that is lethal to me 
and maybe a bad business decision for you. There's a way to fix that. And the diverse, this is where diverse teams becomes not just about a moral thing. It becomes about doing great product development and great uh, user research. All the way around. That's an excellent transition then to take us to, so we've, we've uh, moved to the edge and, and done the work there, declaring at the center, operationalizing, creating yep. the, the systems approach to these things. Uh, same, let's talk about two or three best practices that some, you've got so many suggestions there. And then uh, I've got some follow-ups that I know our listeners are going to be interested in. Okay. Um, and do you mean uh, uh, practices in the sort of declarant center frame? Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, let me give you an example. So we uh, have all of our salaries are transparent at trust. We've done that in 2017 because we want to address equity in pay. As people probably know, there's still differences by gender, by race, even within the same job. And so can, that we was, just, can we just pause there and say, is this is equity in pay something that you would, by the definition earlier, consider a complex problem? Absolutely. And here's the reason why. Um, a, you're dealing with human beings. B, there's imperfect data. C, there's a labor market, especially now, which is incredibly fluid. No one I know has a handle on what is happening at the moment. No one. Um, but what's persistent is this problem. Um, and there's lots of reasons why that might be. Our particular vein was to say, let's make salaries transparent. Why? Because if you can see them, then you can see a trend if, oh, wait, we made a mistake. We can go fix it. If it becomes opaque, then we lose touch with the ability to fix things and we lose trust with people within the company because you look over your shoulder. Is that person being paid more for the same work or are we being treated equivalently? So I go along, I, go, I do a long description of how we got there. But I think to your question is how do we systematize it? What we did was say, okay, now that we've done that, how can we make these systems transparent? Everybody can see it. Two, how do we implement it within the recruiting and hiring team? Well, we're going to give the tools to the recruiting and hiring team where they can actualize it, and then they can change it so that they can use that within their recruiting uh, processes. That's a system. That becomes part of the normal operating system of a company. Similarly, when we review salaries, all those, that information, you can draw it down. But here's a way that we didn't expect. We're a consulting company. We put together projects, teams, and we bid on different things. Pricing that is a skill. How do you price your team? Mm. Now, that decision, because we have all the salaries, a product manager, a head of a practice, a salesperson, a client engagement manager all has access to this information and they can price that themselves. How much do I need for level five engineer, level one engineer, level? They have all the information. They can put that package in together. What does that do? Distribute decision-making down to the edges of the company rather than centralizing it uh, within just a few people. It's been incredibly efficient way of doing business and it was an unexpected benefit. So that's again a, a name, uh, an example of systematizing something. Core piece of information put into a system 
now it's part of our bid and um, and sales process. Fantastic. Great example. Uh, and I, again, I want to reiterate, there are so many more. You've got examples uh, in responding to, well, you've got pandemic and COVID response. You've got uh, the, oh, what was the, uh, the World Central Kitchen. And yeah, they're amazing. Uh, I know we're running short on time, but I've got some other questions, but I'd love to, if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit about World Central Kitchen and some of their approach and using some of these dynamics we've been talking about. So I had an opportunity to talk to Nate Mook, who is the CEO of World Central Kitchen. He works with Jose Andres um, to create this organization. Their purpose is to nourish communities and um, after disasters and so forth. His thing is they are able to go into all sorts of different uh, uh, parts of the world that have very different complexities within that location. So there's a big difference between a fire in Greece, a war in Ukraine, and a uh, hurricane in North in uh, New Orleans. But they have the same way a system for dealing with the unknowns. They say, how can you how can you have a preconceived notion of what to do when you're dealing with a hurricane? The thing that they put into a system is. Uh, we look, we go to satellites and we look for the white rectangles. What are the white rectangles? Those are the trailer parks. Why trailer parks? Because that is a density of impact where they know they can get a lot of information. People are likely to be around and they can sort of deduce what's happening on the ground. So they go there first, talk to people, and then they start to develop hypotheses. The other part of the system, once they develop hypotheses, they can tap into a worldwide network of uh, food, of food producers, of energy, of finance, of transportation on call, and they array those and get them to the site. So they can move incredibly quickly without knowing what's on the ground, have a system for deducing it, then also have a system for coming up with a solution. It's incredible. That's fantastic. And one of the, the elements that you're describing in in the uh, on the declare at the center the and the systematizing of things is in courageous cultures we call it practicing the principle but it's that drilling down and figuring out what is the the critical element and how do we reproduce that in different contexts and different right. things and and but and frequently you have to ask a lot of questions to get there don't you well i mean it brings it back to the original thing about being uh, sort of a new leadership skill is we were trained to have the answer. We need to be better trained in asking the right questions and staying with that question. There's so much uh, uh, value with that. Absolutely. Well, we're talking with Everett Harper, the author of Move to the Edge, Declare at the Center, Practices and Processes for Creatively Solving Complex Problems. And Everett, we've got a couple more questions that I know our listeners are gonna benefit from, but before we, we dive into those, can you tell us where we can connect with you, find the book, uh, learn more about trust, any any place you want to guide us? Sure. So uh, the book is on all the places, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You can do it at uh, ind independent bookstores. Uh, Indie Books is a, is a good reference, bookshop.org. Um, and we love that because getting it in local hands, I think, really supports that. Uh, the second is um, I have my website, everettharper.com. I'm also Everett Harper on Twitter. Same in LinkedIn, um, and then you can definitely read in uh, Instagram. You can reach me there as well. 
And um, third, my company trusts. Um, we we uh, apply these principles. In fact, I learned a lot of these principles from the people I work with. Um, so trust.works is the company site. And you'll learn about what we've done with uh, clients as diverse as uh, US Transcom, moving 15% of all US moves are Transcom, and we're building a system for them, uh, to healthcare.gov, which we were part of fixing back in 2013. Fantastic. Encourage you to make those connections. So, all right, Everett, uh, there's two topics I'd love to uh, wrap up with. And the first is something that you mentioned at the very beginning of the show, which is the leading and managing ourselves. So you yep. talked about external practices, and that's what we've been talking about. Let's go internal and talk about managing your anxiety as a leader, because if I'm going to do any of this and confronting all of this, it starts, it's an inside game. Yeah, yeah. I think this is critically important for me, the way I kind of think about it, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable because we're dealing with challenges that are unknown and uncertainty and it's uncomfortable, but we can practice that. So my particular practices, and I'd certainly recommend, I've been meditating uh, for 25 years. I read Thich Nhat Hanh's Miracle of Mindfulness back then, and it just lit me up. And I had an opportunity to go to two workshops with him. And one of the questions that came up was, how do we end suffering? And his answer was kind of cheeky. He said, in order to, get, to end suffering, we have to get good at suffering. And he had pause. This is the cheeky part. He had a little pause. But then he continued. He said, we often make suffering worse because of our reaction to it. Instead of acknowledging and in some ways breathing through it, seeing it, realizing our response, and then letting that pass, and then watching the next response come. It's very much a, uh, you can't avoid suffering, but you can avoid making it worse and exacerbating it. So that's one really critical practice. So I can be uncomfortable and not feel destabilized. Mm. The second is um, just understanding complex problems. You don't have to know the answer. <laughs> that's the, like probably the that's probably like core principles. You don't have to know the answer to everything, but you can practice how to get those answers. To call on various people if they know the answers. To being aware that we all have blind spots. And then I think the other uh, that I'd like to share is I think there is a there is a, a practice I put in there called a pr purpose playbook, something I've been doing instead of uh, news resolutions for about 15 years. The short version is how can you how can I not like list of all these things I'm going to do, but how can I in a systematic way say what's my purpose every year? and iterate and iterate and iterate every year on that, and then reflect on the year with that in mind. And there's a, we don't have enough time to go through the practice. You can read it in the book, but it's really fun. And what comes out of it is a way to make decisions when you have multiple great options. Mm. What is my, this year, what is my core purpose? What is my core intention for this year? And it's amazing how that can help kind of be a guide because it's a way to check in every year. Am I still heading in the right direction or do I need to shift it a little bit because context has changed? 
so so valuable these are beautiful practices and i am uh i am so happy for you and i think it's awesome that you got to meet that man uh oh, it was incredible I've been I read read him for many many years and i have not had obviously and no longer will have the opportunity but uh that that is such a cool story and i can just imagine it based on what i know of his writing mm -hmm. all right final question for you everett talking about complex problems or challenges facing leaders today is the this whole changing world with remote work. So, yes. uh, and you've got an entire chapter uh, of the book dedicated to this. And I know that there are some leaders, if you get the book, you may find all the value you need just in this one chapter, but mm. there's equal value in all the chapters. So, and you founded a fully remote business quite a while ago. You've got uh, this chapter and where I'd like to focus is this businesses are sorting out how they want to integrate remote in-person all the rest i understand the answer to that is going to vary by absolutely industry company all those various things one of the challenges that we've become increasingly aware of and you're hearing more about it over the last six months is proximity bias yep uh that tendency to favor or go to the person who's nearby or accessible geographically yep. or time zone or through particular tech or what have you and I'm curious, uh, given your experience, if there are particular practices that you have found helpful for leaders, um, either becoming aware of or overcoming proximity bias. Yeah, that's a great one. I think there are two things um, that I can talk about really quickly. One is that if you have gone from a remote, uh, in office and then remote, and you're recruiting remotely now, you have to be aware of proximity bias. So are you favoring people who are around headquarters two days a week? Or um, how are you incorporating people who are not in office? Are you overcompensating? And that becomes actually really important if you're trying to, especially for new employees. Do you bring them into office for a couple of weeks and then send them out just so they can get a feel of what the culture is or what the in-person culture is? A very practical one is Zoom meetings. So let's say you have a hybrid uh, office. We had this issue early on. If you have everybody in one room with one screen with a couple of microphones, and then you have a couple of people off camera or in, in Zoom rooms, you're having two different experiences. Someone can mute the mic and like there's a little joke that passes or someone saying, hey, can you turn that up or whatever? That's really hard and it's not, it's not equivalent. So even in, if we're in the same room, we will have one screen, one person. It makes the experience of a Zoom call equal and therefore you get rid of the proximity bias because everybody's in the same situation. It's a practical one, but it makes a really, really big difference. All right, just a taste. Thank you for that. Just a Thank taste you. of ways to do that. We are at time, and I would love to be able to continue this conversation. So much rich wisdom, so many great practices. Uh, Everett, thank you so much for uh, for writing Move to the Edge, Declare at the thank Center, so and much. sharing these with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for being a guest today. And uh, listeners, move to the edge, get comfortable with the unknowns, asking those questions, not having to have the answer, systematize, operationalize those principles and declare it the center, and you're on your way to being the leader you'd want your boss to be. Everett Harper, thank you again. Thank you so much. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.